Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to begin a four-week series today uh, through the four chapters of the book of Ruth. And this book is about family, but ultimately it's about God promising to love His family. If you're part of His family, uh, He has made a covenant promise to, to, uh, of Hesed uh, to have a steadfast love for you. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into Ruth chapter 1. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to just gather together as your people. Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would be with us in these next moments together. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just work in tandem with your word to do the gospel transformation that needs to happen in each and every one of our lives, in our thinking, in our hearts and emotions. Lord, if there's a someone that needs conviction over sin, Spirit, come and do that convicting work. If there's someone that is discouraged, Spirit, come and encourage us with these gospel promises from Your Word. If there's someone here, Lord, that that needs to, to see the gospel in a salvific, converting way today, Spirit, come and give them eyes to see. Help them to be born again today. Lord, for all of us as we Look at this passage. May we find great joy and great hope in the promise that you loved your family. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, throughout the years, uh, over and over, I've heard from numerous people the, the impact that their grandparents' faith have, has had upon them. Um, I've heard of stories about how people have come to faith because maybe their parents weren't believers, but when they would go see their grandmother, their grandmother would drag them to church, and that's where they heard the gospel. I, I've heard stories about uh, people uh, attributing their, their praying grandparents to Uh, all these glorious things that happened in their lives and how God transformed their lives. They make a direct connection to a praying grandmother. I love those stories because I also regularly hear from grandparents who say, you know, I I don't know my purposes anymore. I don't don't really feel like I contribute anything anymore. And, And I love it when they say that because it gives me an opportunity just to jump all over them and totally rebuke them for that way of thinking. Because listen, if you're a grandparent here today, uh, are, are, are you praying for your grandchildren? Listen, you have a glorious, important ministry while you still have breath in your lungs to be praying for your children and praying for your grandchildren. If you're a, a grandparent and you've lived longer than someone else that you're around, know that you've gained wisdom in those years and you have a purpose and a role to share that wisdom with them. It helps them, it serves them and ministers to them when you do that. Listen, if you're still here, I challenge you with your words. Are you ministering through your words to your family, to your children, to your grandchildren? Because listen, there's so many stories of people saying that maybe it was just something that a grandmother said just off the cuff, just to encourage a grandchild. But that became this seed that gets in their heart and mind that two decades later, they point back to and say, man, that transformed my lives. Are you ministering with your words? Friends, God promises to love his family, and he does it through the ordinary. And I think that's the main message of the book of Ruth, that God promises to love his family, and he does it through the ordinary. 
If you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, it is the most beautiful short story in the Bible. And listen, if you know that genre, then you know that this is, okay, it, it's short. It, it's, it's four chapters. But there's layers to this story. This is a beautiful and profound story. And like all great stories, it just kind of sticks to you. So in, in, in one real way, I kind of feel like in this series, I, I want to just kind of introduce you to the book of Ruth. Because what I want you to do is really just to keep circling this book. Because the more you circle this book, it's one of those stories that it just is going to hit you in deeper ways. As you wrestle with all the kind of nuance of what's going on with these characters, you're just going to mine more glorious treasures the more you spend in it. Ruth is a beautiful and profound story. However, it's important because it communicates that God promises to love His family. So if God, by His grace and, and, and through faith alone and Christ alone, if He has adopted you into His family, then this story teaches us uh, about some of the covenant promises that He has made to you. God has promised to love you. And, and it's not like a, a fleeting, you know, romantic teenage love. This is a steadfast love. A hesed love that remains through all the ups and downs. In other words, you're never too far gone. Like you, you, you've never slidden too far away from God's love. God loves you the same at your worst moment as He does at your best moment. He promises to love you. And, and further, Ruth teaches us that He loves us in the ordinary. So listen, there's things going on in your life or things that you're doing in your life. And think of it this way, you're, you're playing checkers while God is playing like three-dimensional chess. If there was a thing of 12-dimensional chess, that's what he's doing. He's working in the ordinary where, where you just think, okay, listen, I'm just, you know, uh, chit-chatting with my granddaughter. God's doing something at a higher order in those moments. You think, listen, I'm just taking my son to school. God's doing something in that ordinary. So God promises to love us, and he does it through the ordinary. Well, let's look at these first five verses. And before we look at how God works through the ordinary, I want us to begin by looking at how people work in the ordinary. Let's start with Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Chelion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chelion died, so that, the, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Now, as the story progresses, we're going to see how God works through the ordinary. But, but in these first five verses, we get a, a glimpse or an example of how people tend to work in the ordinary. Let me just make a few observations. Number one, the, the context of this book is the book of Judges. It says that in the, in the first verse. And, and if you don't remember the book of Judges, what's going on there is this is after God's people have uh, been set free from slavery in Egypt. They've wandered in the desert. We, then we get to the book of Joshua, and they actually go into the promised land, and they've settled in the promised land. 
And if you remember, there's these 12 tribes of the nation that make up the nation, and they each have different sections of the promised land. And the, the next period is the period of judges. So this is before the period of the kings. So this is before King David, before King Solomon, before all those other kings that come along. It's during this period of the judges. Now, the judges um, are, are this kind of unique period of time where, where think of it as, okay, it's a, it's a nation as a whole, but then they have these 12 tribes, these, these 12 states, if you will. And so by our American experience, you, you have this, this tension that happens of states' rights and federal rights, okay? So, so think like the Articles of Confederation versus the Constitution. That's what's going on here. You, you have these tribes that are preserving their tribal identity, and they don't really always want to work together as a whole. And so it's kind of a, a fractured, almost loose connection during the time of the judges. Now, the problem during that time is actually leads into them wanting kings uh, because they, they recognize they need to be united more than what they are. But during this time of the judges, it, it's a time of decay. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it, it's a, frankly, even a gross book. It's a very harsh, it's an awful read. And there's a sense that the whole nation is just spiraling down, and then it ends in this awful, gross, horrific ending. That's the period of the judges. It's a time of great moral, religious decay in the nation of Israel. And that's what's going on all around them in the book of Ruth. It's a dark time. But second, this story takes place in Bethlehem, which is a town located in the tribe of Judah, as it says. And, and then it goes to Moab, and then it goes back to Bethlehem. So uh, you're likely familiar with the town of Bethlehem, right? This is the town where Jesus is born. And in the town of Bethlehem, just like it was in the time of Christ, in the time of Ruth, it's, a, it's in a similar state. It's this little village. It's, it's located kind of in the rolling hills next to uh, the city of Jerusalem. And, and the the town or the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And that kind of gives you an indication of kind of what life was like there. It's filled with shepherds and farmers. Picture kind of like the idyllic uh, rural setting, okay? This is not a big city. It's not a wealthy place. These are farmers and shepherds. It's a beautiful place. But it's kind of this idyllic, picturesque rural village. However, Moab is an entirely, uh, an, an entirely different nation, the Moabites are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and typically uh, they're mentioned as just like clear enemies of Israel. They, they don't worship the God of Israel. They don't follow the, the law of God. They're not faithful. And, and further, the Moabites lived in the area around the Dead Sea. Now, even if you haven't been to the Dead Sea, you can picture what's going on there. It's dead. It's not mostly dead. It's all the way dead. It's the lowest point in the world. And so the water flows in there and it just sits there. And so all these, uh, so there's no way for uh, fish to survive there. And it's a desert region all the way around there. Like if you're a Dune fan, it looks like Dune, okay? Four of you got that. The rest of you, if it did that, it means you're not a nerd. Welcome. If you did get it, good for you. But it looks like Dune, okay? When I was there, I was like, this is what Dune looks like. It's just desert. There's nothing there, okay? So that's the comparison between the two places. You've got Bethlehem, and then you've got Moab. But a couple of comments on the characters here. Elimelech, he's the head of this little family. He's married to Naomi. They have two sons. And then the two sons, while they're in Moab, they marry two Moabite women. Now, fourth, by contrast to the book of Judges, this is a picture into like ordinary life of ordinary people, okay? If you know the book of Judges, 
These are the rulers, these are the battles, these are these, these headline-grabbing, scandalous things that are going on. But while all that's going on around them, you still have probably most people doing what ordinary people do. They're keeping their heads down, they're going to work every day, they're loving their family, they're trying to take care of their children, they're focusing on the right things. So Judges grabs the headlines, but Ruth is this picture of ordinary people. Now, ordinary people display both virtuous characteristics. There's virtuous things about being ordinary, but there's also some vices that we see in here. Now, from a virtuous perspective, Elimelech is doing, I think, at some level, something very virtuous. He can't, or is maybe struggling to provide for his family in Israel, and he takes them to Moab in order to provide for his family. There's something virtuous going on there. He's, these are ordinary people living ordinary lives. Their sons grow up, they marry uh, uh, two ladies, and so this is, in many ways, a virtuous, ordinary life. However, if you push into this story just a little bit, you see some vices going on here. And, and listen, if you were the original readers of this story and knew this story, there's something that is not virtuous about Elimelech and Naomi leaving for uh, Moab. You see, here's what's going on. God's people are suffering in the land, and when it gets hard, they bail. They leave. They worry about themselves, they worry about their own family, and they run off to sojourn in a country that is enemies to God's people. And, and further, we don't see anything in here about them coming back you know, multiple times a year to attend the festivals. We don't see anything in here about them coming back and giving a tithe to the Lord at the temple. And even worse, this is the most scandalous part of this story up to this point. If you're an original reader of this, uh, of this story, like you're looking sideways that they left for Moab. You're, you're looking sideways of like, okay, where's, where's the return to Israel for the festivals? But then when you read, they married two Moabite women. Whoa, wait a second. Slow down. Here, wait, wait. You, you, you guys let your sons not marry some nice Jewish girl? They marry someone who doesn't believe in God? Like, this is the real scandalous part of it, okay? That they've married these Moabite women. And what the original readers would see here is a lack of piety in the lives of Elimelech and Naomi. Now, people operate on what they can see and what works best for them. Ordinary people, we operate on what we can see and what works best for us. There's a famine in Judah. Okay, I'm going to Moab. That's how we tend to operate. We operate on what we can see and what works best for us. That's how ordinary people live their lives. Now, as the story goes, Elimelech eventually dies, and sadly, over, the, over time, the two boys die. Now, let's pick up in verse 6 to 14, and we're going to see that God calls his family home. Let's first look at verse 6. Then, he arose, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, let me stop here for an observation. This is how God is playing three-dimensional chess. So he brings famine to Israel, and they, I think, unfaithfully, with just physical eyes and not spiritual eyes, run off to Moab. And I think there's a sense that they don't spiritually mature sojourning in the land. They don't run off to Moab and become these great missionaries in Moab. I don't think they spiritually grow and mature, but God doesn't leave them there. 
He then adjusts the rain and the crops, and then He brings them back uh, to the land of Israel. So God is working in all of these things. He's working through the rain. He's working through the crops. He's working through life. He's working through death. And ultimately, He's calling His family back home. God is active in the ordinary. That's what we're supposed to see here. Now, here's where I want to camp out just for a moment. It is I want us to be really careful with that point. God is active in the ordinary. But that's true, but I want you to avoid a couple of ditches with that observation. God works, is active in the ordinary, but I want us to be careful because I don't want that truth to take you to a place where either you become mystically paralyzed or you become flighty. Let me explain what I mean. I've seen some people look for God in everything to the degree that they do nothing. Like they're constantly looking for God all around them, and it just paralyzes them. They become confused. They don't know what God's doing. They don't know what He's calling them to. They're always looking for God's will. And in reality, it kind of gets to this uh, self-absorption. Like they're constantly asking, okay, God, what do you want from me today? And, you know, and, it, and they're just overly focused on themselves. They're constantly confused on what He's calling them to do. And I, this is maybe a silly example. But, but it's like they, they go to buy a shirt, and they've got the red one and the blue one, and they don't know which one to buy. God, which one do you want me to buy? Listen, in that moment, if you're paralyzed over things like that, looking for God's will, you've missed the point of God working in the ordinary. If your wife likes the red one, get the red one, okay? Like, this is not meant to paralyze you, always looking mystically for God's will. I've also seen people on the other end, they look for God in everything to the degree that they do everything. Have you seen people like that? Okay, God's was here, and they hop over here. Oh, he's over over here, and then they hop over here. Oh, God's oh, call me here, and then they hop over here, and they're constantly just bouncing around from one thing to the next. And eventually what happens is they're erratically bouncing around to the point that they're struggling de- determining uh, uh, the discernment of God's will. And, and what ends up happening is they don't display grit and steadfastness. They're unreliable on the things uh, that they step in and do. When I highlight that God is active in the ordinary. What I'm trying to do is to draw your eyes away from seeking the next big thing and putting it on real people right in front of you. When I say God's operating in the ordinary, I'm not asking you to spend your life, you know, hopping to the next big thing. I'm trying to take your eyes and put it on the ordinary. Put it in the real people in your real life whose God has brought around you to love you. In, in, in other words, embrace those moments of making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like, be intentional with the drives to school. Don't rush, rush past conversations. If God has enabled you to buy a house, praise God. Then, then take that as an opportunity to know and love your neighbors. Elimelech and Naomi They did what was right in their own eyes. That's the theme of the book of Judges, and they fit within that. They didn't live faithfully according to God's word. However, God did not give up on them. He did not forsake them in Moab. The main point of Ruth 1 verse 6 is that God is lovingly using the ordinary in order to call his family back home. Do you see that? Isn't that glorious? He hasn't left them in Moab. He's orchestrated all these things in order to draw them back. Let's pick up in 7 to 14. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And she said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for this is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We've picked on Elimelech and Naomi up to this point. But this is one of the, the great examples, I think, of the truth of the story is it highlights, you, you see the real, the texture and the complexity of Naomi. She, she's not someone who's abandoned the faith, okay? She's someone that, that I think displays some, some real faithfulness here. Like, number one, she starts talking about the Lord with them, and, and they know what she's talking about. So clearly, she's explained about the God of Israel. And, and also, she displays a, a genuine love for her daughters-in-laws. There's something really virtuous and beautiful about Naomi here. Like, she loves her daughters-in-law. She, she wants what is best for them. She wished she could give them new husbands, but she knows it's impossible. The whole point about her having a child and a husband, all, all that is to say that this is impossible. Like, what is best for you is, is to go back to Moab. So this is an example of pure and beautiful love. They wanted to be together. Leaving each other brought tears and it brought kisses. This is a tender, authentic moment. This story is meant to be, uh, we're supposed to see the heartbreak of this story at this, at this point. This is a beautiful example of love. Now, con- connecting the idea of God loving through the ordinary in this scene, it reminds us that God is, is loving you through ordinary people who love you. You see, you don't need extraordinary acts of God in order to demonstrate that He loves you. God loves you by giving you people in your life to love you. Are you with me? Let me give you an illustration. I have a friend, and she has an extraordinary story of God's grace in her life. It's a great story of God loving her, and she knows it. Like She knows this is an example of how God has loved me. She was a, a really good uh, college athlete, and in the middle of one of her games, she collapses, almost dies. She should have died. But there's this series of events that happen where uh, uh, the right people come and take care of her. Like, literally, she could have gone the normal way to the hospital, and she probably would have died because there was a wreck there in traffic. But she went another way. She got there faster. She actually went to the wrong hospital. The ho- but the doctor who really needed to treat her, he happened to be at that hospital that day instead of the other hospital. The, the, all these weird things happened in the surgery. In fact, the doctor who was performing the surgery wasn't a believer. But because all these things happened, he becomes a believer through it. She writes a book on it. I mean, it's a great story of God doing something extraordinary. And she does what is right. She gives glory to God for it. Hear me. God doesn't have to do any of that in your life for you to know that he loves you. You don't have to have anything like that in your life for you to know that God loves you because the way he typically loves us is through ordinary people loving us. Amen? Like you don't need all that. However, most of us, we're not going to have that type of experience. We're going, to have, we're going to see the evidences of God's love for us in the ordinary. Those ordinary examples of God loving us 
Those are no less extraordinary than some sort of crazy story that happens. You don't need those crazy experiences to know that God loves you. Are you grateful for the friends and family in your life? Like, listen, that's, that's the main way God loves you, is through real people, friends and family, who are really loving you in sacrificial ways. Do you praise God for them? Do you view them as gifts from God? Orpah and Ruth have clearly been loved by, by Naomi. And, and in turn, they have genuinely loved their mother-in-law. It says Ruth clung to her. What, what a beautiful image. In fact, this, this clinging, it's a sign of genuine love. Like when someone has loved you well and you love them, you just want to stay in their presence, right? You just want to cling to them. You, you hopefully have had that experience with, with God himself. But that's what's going on here in this picture that they're clinging to each other because they love each other. Now listen, before we keep reading, I want you to notice one thing in verse 13. This is the first mention by, uh, about Naomi's bitterness. Now, Naomi's name, it means pleasantness or, or sweetness. One commentator I read said that it's kind of the equivalent of, of you know, giving a girl the name Sweetie Pie. Naomi's name is Sweetie Pie, okay? And, and, but yet, in this moment, she feels very cheated. She feels very robbed. She's angry. She's bitter. That, that, that anger has settled in her heart. She's no longer sweetie pie anymore. And notice the direction of her anger. She's angry at God for all that has happened to her. God is lovingly calling her home. But Naomi is bitter towards God. She, she can't see any of it because she's so angry at Him. Let's keep reading 15 to 18. And this is how God works in the hearts of his family. Verse 15 says, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. These verses are famous to us because they're typically used in a wedding ceremony, right? It's always interesting and kind of funny to me when you are working with a couple and they want this in there, and then they realize, wait a second, this really isn't the context between the love of a husband and a wife, but a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. So they think that's kind of weird and inappropriate. I think it's actually very appropriate. And here's why. This is the greatest example, the most beautiful expression of loyal love in the Bible. What a, what a beautiful scene here. Listen, they, uh, Ruth makes this pledge to Naomi, but she's also making a pledge to God, isn't she? She's, she, she is committing all these things. She's determined to love her and to love her sacrificially. She's making a genuine commitment to her. L listen, this pledge is going to cost Ruth. This is sacrificial. Her life would be easier if she went back to Moab. And listen, I don't think we should fault Orpah for going back to Moab. But, but this is going to cost her something. It, it's really to the benefit of Naomi, not to the benefit of Ruth that she makes this pledge. However, Naomi discouraged her because she had real fear for her. She was coming to a new country where she was going to be an outcast. Now, listen, by God's grace, 
in Israel, God had given them laws for how to treat sojourners and foreigners. And if, by comparison, all the other nations, they, they were to treat them better than the other nations. But I mean, let's be honest, she, she was going to be an outcast in Israel. That, like the other ladies in that village, they were going to be slow to trust her. Okay, She was always going to be at some level on the fringes of society. So there was real fear that Naomi had. And listen, I think Ruth uh, goes into this with eyes wide open. I think she understands the fear, but Ruth's love is greater than her fear. She's not naive to the cost, but her love trumps all of that. It's greater than any fear that she has. And, and, and to push this a little further, out of love, Ruth is willing to change her identity. You see that? Like that's what's going on in that, that loyal statement, your God, my God, your people, my people, where you go, I'll go. She's committing and pledging to change her identity. So out of love, she's willing to go where Naomi goes, even though that's better for Naomi and not as good for Ruth. Out of love, she commits to live where uh, it's not best for her, but best for someone else. Out of love, she's embraced a new people, even though that new people would probably shun her. Out of love, she's willing to not only live and die as a Moabite, but to live and die as an Israelite. And out of love, their God is going to be her God. So out of sacrificial love, genuine, tangible love, Ruth changes her identity. And listen, in that moment, I cannot overstate the significance of that moment in that Moabite desert. This is, this is a real turning point in, in the story, God's broad meta-narrative story of His redemptive plan. Because as we're going to read through the rest of the book, it's going to land in a place where Ruth is actually in the line of Christ. Ruth becomes part of the story of Jesus. She becomes in that lineage all leading up to the Messiah. And, it, and it's at this crossroads right here that that thing happens. Listen, going back to checkers and three-dimensional chess here. If you were just walking by that day, you just saw two ladies talking. You maybe noticed that they were crying and hugging together. But you wouldn't know all this cosmic thing that is happening in that moment. In that moment, God is demonstrating His love for His people. At that moment, He's keeping His covenant promises. At that moment, He's orchestrating everything that's going to ultimately land with Christ and crescendoing with Jesus' birth. This, is all, this all means that God wants us to learn something from Ruth. This isn't just a, a pass-by moment. This is a moment to stop and really reflect and learn from Ruth. What can we learn from Ruth's loyal love? Friend, are you grateful for those that God has sent in your life to love you? Are you, are you faithful uh, to those that God has sent in your life to love? Again, this is all part of God's plan. God always calls His people back home. He never gives up on His family. Many times, He does it by working in the hearts of His family. And this demonstration of loyal love, it becomes this turning point in redemptive history. This is all part of God's plan. Let's look at these last uh, verses. This is... That God, that God will fill his family. Look at verses 19 to 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth 
the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Sweetie pie has turned into bitter Mara. You can pick up what Mara means, right? There's a, there's a filling theme that kind of runs through these last verses. You see, Naomi left the famine in Moab for Bethlehem. Bethlehem means, again, the house of bread. And she claimed to have gone away full, but now she's returned empty. However, her comments, I think, say more about her heart than her reality, right? There's this theme running through that she feels like she's empty, but yet God is filling her. Was she really full when she left Israel? Like That's her claim. I went away full. Were you really? I thought you went away because it was a famine. And, and also think that yeah, as we look at their piety while they're in Moab, they, they don't display a lot of spiritual fullness, do they? There's some spiritual emptiness there. Now, listen, no doubt Naomi lost a lot. And, and I don't want to diminish that. She, she has lost a husband. She's lost two boys. She's lost a daughter-in-law. She's lost her family. I don't want to diminish the struggle here too much. But she does have a perspective problem, though, right? Like she has a heart issue going on. Let me demonstrate this by just comparing her to Ruth, okay? Ruth has lost a lot, right? And listen, if you want to start comparing them, like Naomi has lost a husband who they had a full life together. They had children together. Their children were married off. And in kind of the natural order of things, he dies as he's older, okay? But compare that with Ruth. Ruth loses a husband but before they're able to have children together in ways that are, that are abnormal. Like, like if you want to just do the husband loss comparison there, I think Ruth has probably lost more. Now listen, I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of, okay, who has it harder? The, the point of that is, is just to compare both of them to demonstrate that Naomi is wallowing and settling in her anger while Ruth is pledging this loyal love to her mother-in-law and then moving forward for the life ahead of her. It's a, I think it's a great comparison between the two of them to demonstrate that Naomi has a heart problem. She has a perception problem going on here. You see, Naomi's problem is that she has become bitter. But more worrisome is that her anger is directed at God. She's bitter at God. She blames God for all that has happened to her. Look again at verse 21. I went away full. And then she indicts God. The Lord has brought me back empty. Be careful, Naomi. Be careful in that moment. Now listen, we're, we're coming out of a series on bitterness. And, and one of those messages was on lament. We're to lament in these moments, right? Like, listen, Naomi, I think, has legitimate reasons to lament, to lay it before the Lord, complain to Him, cry out to Him, weep before Him. But do you remember what happens in a lament? There's always a yet God turn. That, that complaining turns into song before you hang up the phone with the Lord, right? We don't see that in Naomi. We just see the bitterness, putting God in, a, in, in the dock, blaming God for these things, and we don't see the yet God turn. We don't see the complaining turned into song. Naomi's at a very dangerous place here. Further. Is she really coming home empty? Listen, we just read the most beautiful pledge of love in the entire Bible. And listen, I'll be honest with you. 
One of the things that is going on here, Naomi does not display appropriate gratitude for Ruth. In, in her bitterness and her, you know, uh, being overwhelmed in her pain and not making that yet God turn, I think probably a level of self-absorption. She doesn't have the appropriate gratitude for Ruth. Her circumstances are hard, but she's not empty. When, what, what she refuses to see is that God is filling. Again, God will fill his family. God has given Naomi this, the, the determined, loyal love of a daughter-in-law. God has brought her back to the house of bread. And notice that final phrase, God has brought her home at the beginning of the barley harvest. Like, do you see all the subtle little movements in there? I'm empty. Are you empty? God has orchestrated this to, to bless you with the loyal love of a daughter-in-law. God has orchestrated the rain and the crops to bring you out of famine into plenty at the very moment of the beginning of the barley harvest. God promises to fill His people. God promises that He will always call back His people. There's all these little providential nuggets that point to the fact that God will fulfill His people. Uh, friends, we end this chapter on bitterness. Naomi's anger is about famine and it's about heartache. She can't see the ways that God is filling her because she is focused, uh, her, her bitter anger is focused on the famine and focused on the heartache. Ruth 1 then forces us to ask some, some honest questions of ourselves, doesn't it? What famine is preventing you from seeing God do something in your life? But like what heartache is preventing you from seeing how God is trying to fill you? If you're in a famine season, maybe you need to hear Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Do you believe that He can work good in your famine? Friend, if you're walking through heartache, do you need to hear Joshua 1, 5? I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you need to believe that He is with you and that He's for you in your pain? What is God promising to do even though you're experiencing famine and heartache? Listen, famine isn't a good excuse to run off to Moab. Famine is a moment to trust the Lord. Heartache. Heartache's not a good excuse to be bitter at the Lord. Heartache is actually a moment to draw closer to Him. Do you remember Jesus' word in Matthew 11? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, when you're in a, a season or an experience of famine and heartache, don't run off to the desert. Draw near to Jesus and find filling there. He promises to fill you. Therefore, friends, how is he calling you home today? In the face of famine, in the face of heartache, I promise that He's calling you home. He's calling you home. He's calling you back into His presence. He's calling you back to His people. How do you need to trust Him and turn to Him today? And finally, is, is He using some ordinary means of grace to care for you or to call you back home? Are, are you looking for something extraordinary when right in front of you the thing that He's providing you is this ordinary means of grace and it's right in front of you are you looking for cloud formations when he's just offering you a church family like are you looking at horoscopes in the newspaper when he's brought you a daughter-in-law 
Do you have a grandmother praying for you? This week, I'll close with this, but I heard a great testimony about a praying grandmother. Uh, Helen uh, Baylor, was a, she had a successful singing career in the 1970s and 80s. Helen originally was born in Oklahoma and Tulsa. She had a really faithful grandmother, God-fearing woman. And even though Helen's parents weren't believers, the grandmother got her there to church every week. And Helen had these natural singing abilities from, from an early age. And she says that even uh, as an eight-year-old, she was singing in the adult choir. And in fact, those, uh, that's where she really developed her, her passion for singing. And she had this grandmother who was this spiritual rock for her. And she would periodically say things like, listen, God's going to, uh, he's going to use you someday. However, when Helen and her family moved to California. They quit going to church, and uh, her parents were regularly in bars and clubs, and they would, they would drag their young daughter with her to those clubs. It wasn't a good environment for the young girl, but it, it gave her an opportunity to start a music career. So even uh, by the time she was 13, she was opening for people like Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin. She had her first album at 13. But as she looks back on that, she saw, sees all of that as a trap. Because in that moment, she grew to love the glitz and the glamour and the money and the applause. When she was 16, uh, she had a baby out of wedlock. She's traveling around the country singing with people like Shaka Khan. And she got into another trap on that tour. She started smoking marijuana for the first time. And and for her, marijuana became what it does for uh, a number of people. It became this gateway into other things. She started taking pills and uh, she was drinking a lot. And eventually, uh, she started doing cocaine. And she got addicted to cocaine, and and she says that she was high every day. And as she tells the story, at this point, then she sings, but I had a praying grandmother. Now, eventually, she's on tour, and and she meets a a nice man who ran the lights for the tour. He was also the the cocaine dealer for everybody. And so the way she says it is, is he gave me cocaine for free, but it wasn't for free. And so ultimately, she ends up living with him. She starts participating in him, delivering cocaine, doing drops, picking up money, all of this. She's getting high every day. But every day, something strange happens. Even though she's high and she's passed out much of the day, she would wake up at the same time every day, turn on the TV, and it was the exact time that a TV preacher named Pastor Frederick Price would come on TV. Frederick Price was an African-American preacher in Los Angeles. And every day, passed out, chaos all around her, But she would wake up at the exact time, turn on the TV, and and he would be preaching. Now, initially, she's just making fun of him in her mind. She said she would sit there and and roll a joint watching to Pastor Price preach. And she said at that point, just a real battle for her soul began to happen. She felt convicted about what she was doing. She she would go to his church some, and then she uh, she would come home and then flush all of her drugs And then she would buy more drugs, feel convicted, go back to church, come home, flush all of her drugs, and it began this cycle. But as she tells the story, then she would sing, but I had a praying grandmother. Eventually broken one Friday night, she's watching Christian TV, and just through tears, she cries out to God, if you'll take me back, I want to come home. And in that moment, she said she was freed from her drug addiction. The really cool part of the story, I think, is that you know, in telling people about what happened, she starts walking faithfully with the Lord. One of the people she tells is her grandmother. And her grandmother says, wait, what, what Friday night? And she tells her, and she says, honey, I want you to know that I, that was the tail end of a two-week fast and prayer that I had been doing for you. That Friday night, I spent all evening just on my face before the Lord, praying for you all night. He 
Again, she says, I had a praying grandmother. Helen gives all glory to God for her story, and she also gives credit to a praying grandmother. Helen is like Naomi, and, and she's like all of us. We all have our famines. We all have our heartaches. We all have our trials. We all have our struggles. And when we're all suffering from this broken world, and we're all tempted to get angry and bitter about it, we're all tempted to blame God for it. At times we're tempted to run off to the desert. At times we want to run off to Moab. But God never runs away. God's always calling us back home. He's always promising to fill us up. In our sin, we think that we're smarter than him. But we're only playing checkers, and he's playing three-dimensional chess. He's always fulfilling his plans. Friend, when all you can see is famine and all you can see is heartache, trust that God's promise to never stop loving his family. He'll never stop loving you. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how low you fall, he is still there loving his family. No No matter how far you run, believe that he's always calling you home. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this book, this story, the opening of this story. Lord, may we be a people that, that doesn't get lost in the trials of this world. When we face famine, when we face heartache, may we be a people that doesn't run from you, but runs to you. Lord, may we be a people that also looks around and, and really believes that you're in charge of everything, you're sovereign over everything, you're working all things according to your plan, and your plan is to promise to love your people. So Lord, may we be a people that takes our eyes off the extraordinary and puts it on the ordinary and sees how you're working in real people in our lives that, that love us well. May we be people that loyally love the people in our lives that you give us to love. 